Hey, what's up, everybody? I am Amna Navaz. This is Uncomfortable, the place where we like to have honest, in-depth conversations about some of the issues that seem to divide us as Americans. So as you know, each week we try to focus in on one special guest. Um, and today I am stoked to say that LZ Granderson is here with us. How you doing, man? I'm very uncomfortable right now. Already? Already. Dude, this is not off to a good start. Here's the hit list. <laughs> Can I do your resume in short? ABC contributor. Mm-hmm. We've worked together on multiple like, occasions. All over the country. All over the country. Uh, mostly political coverage, right? Just yes. entertainment together, too. This is like the full disclosure part of the podcast. You've also got like 17 other jobs. Co-host, got bills, girl. Uh, co-host of Sports Nation. Mm-hmm. You've got a morning drive radio show with two other less famous dudes. Or Keyshawn Johnson. Super Bowl win. What else? What else? George Sedano. What else? What else? What else? I got awards too. It's really Elsie's <laughs> show, and you do have awards, my friend. You have multiple journalism awards. You've been around. You do this well. Thank you for being here. Well, of course. <laughs> I can't say no. Is what he's really <laughs> it's saying. Been, it's, it's you. Of course, <laughs> I'm going to be here. I miss you so much. I wish I could be in New York, but as we discussed, I'm contractually obligated to be in LA right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to come out to see you in L.A. anytime. That's on the record. Um, So, okay, so we start off each of these shows asking people to kind of share their personal narrative, whatever it is that you would like to share about how you grew up, where you grew up, just to get a sense of, like, how you came to believe the things that you do believe to be true to be that way. So go for it. Tell me about you. All right. So. (laughs) Where to begin? What if I told you? No. (laughs) So I'm originally from Detroit, right. Detroit, Detroit. Not none of that fringe stuff that some people sometimes try to say. <laughs> you know, you meet them. I'm from Detroit. Oh, really? Which high school? And they're like, uh, blah, 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 blah. It's like, you do realize that's like in Canada, right? <laughs> like, that's not really Detroit, Detroit. Um, but I'm from Detroit, Cast Tech. Um, just shot uh, Sports Nation with David Allen Greer, the comedian yeah. from A Living Color. He went to the same high school as I did. Oh, no way. Well, I guess I went to the same high school as him. He's a little bit older than I am. Let's Gotta be clear. Get it right, yes. Let's be clear. And, uh, you know, originally from Detroit, and we spent a lot of time talking about Detroit and on this comeback, and I grew up when it was sliding down. So uh, my view of the world uh, was very much framed by watching iconic stores and buildings close as I got older and older. Mm. Nothing inspires you more like seeing iconic buildings close as you're getting older. Like seeing your neighborhood just kind of shudder <laughs> shrink, around exactly. you. Like we used to um, go to the huge. Do you mean Hudson's department store? No, is that a? Is it, that all over? It used to be. Oh, okay. <laughs> and um, there used to be a huge one in downtown Detroit that was famous. Had all the fur coats, and it was like if you got a check, and you know you had any cash left over, you would go there even if you didn't have any money to spend because you just felt as if you had made it. Mm-hmm. It was like a marker for middle class people. Okay. And when that shut down, that was huge. Because all of a sudden, you didn't really have a need to go to downtown Detroit, Mm -hmm. Um, at least not regularly, right? So I think that was sort of my kind of beginning of understanding how um, industry impacted neighborhoods and impacted your worldview. Because all of a sudden now, if if people stop going downtown, Mm -hmm. then you stop seeing things outside of your neighborhood. And when you stop seeing outside of things in your neighborhood, you start believing that you're able to do things outside of your neighborhood. And things get smaller. You know, I talk to kids here in L.A. who have never seen the ocean. You know, you sit there like going, well, how is that possible? Like it's literally over there. It's like right there. Wow. And they've just never 
have been taken outside of their neighborhoods. Yeah. And if you're strapped by transportation issues, you don't have a city that has a really healthy public transportation system, which mm-hmm. I don't believe L.A. does, then it, it makes sense why you've never been to the beach, even though you grew up in L.A. How did you grow up? Tell me about your family. What was what were you guys like in that Detroit household? Um, so at max, there were about five people in the house, two adults, um, three kids. Actually, no, that's not true. I forgot my older brother and sister. See, there's so many kids. I had an older brother and sister. You're losing track of people already. <laughs> uh, so there's max, there were seven of us. But my oldest, um, my eldest brother and sister left to go live with their biological father in Mississippi, mm-hmm. and um, leaving me, and I'm the only biological between my mother and father, mm-hmm. and then my two younger siblings who were the children of the stepfather that I had living in the house in Detroit. Okay, you kept up with all of that. I think I'm good. So, I have a mental diagram. Yes. Yeah. Three sets of kids, um, but I was the only child with my mom and dad. Okay, um, I was abused by my stepfather. He beat me for sport for the for the most part. Um he, you know, punished his biological kids, but he punished, you know, me. And so uh you grow up um either one or two ways. And I was blessed because I grew up both ways. <laughs> First I grew up fearful and um afraid and very quiet and um reserved. Uh I can remember getting beaten for reading out loud. You know, just reading a book, he would come and beat me because I was talking too loud. I was reading out loud. So you learn to pull within yourself. Mm-hmm. And then there comes a point in which you realize that you have to fight for your life. And then I got, I was blessed to live the other part where I learned how to be resilient and defend and fight for myself. Puberty helped, got taller, you know, started feeling myself. Hair was growing in places that weren't before. So I figured, oh, I must be tough because I'm now hairier. Um, and that helped. I do remember talking to him the day that my mom divorced him. And I just kind of said to him in my most pleasant voice, if you ever see me walking down the street, you should probably cross it because I would probably kill you. Um, and, you know, he's smarter than I thought because I've actually have never seen him since that day. Have you not? No, no. Or else I'd be in jail. Hello. Because I'm for murder. Aren't you listening? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. So, uh, you know, it was it was tough. You know, we were you know, fluctuated between poverty and lower, lower middle class. Um, both of them worked. Um, my mom and stepfather didn't have like high school educations. They both got GEDs. And mm-hmm. so, but in that, in that time you could still get fairly decent jobs, particularly in the automotive industry, um, without a high school diploma. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't as if there was obviously no food on the table, but we still had government cheese. We still were dependent upon government pork, which, you know, basically was just poisonous meat in retrospect, you know, because there was so much saturated fat that surrounded the pork in the can. Oh, God. That by the time you actually got to the meat, you had already consumed enough like cholesterol to, like, kill a cow. So it was, I think that's part of the reason why they discontinued it. Um, the government cheese, though, I will say, girl, make the best macaroni and cheese. Really? Like, you had to bake it for a long time, make it melt, because it wasn't, like, natural cheese. But once you finally got to that Composition point, was very unique. <laughs> very unique. To that cheese. I mean, it, it came in bricks, to let you know. Five-pound <laughs> bricks was this cheese, just to let you know. So what was, like, what was important to you as a kid? What were, what were you taught other than the killer mac and cheese? Okay. Yeah, what, what were, like, values you were taught? What was, like, your worldview? What? Uh, hard work. 
was nothing that was spoken about, but something you observed. You know, I have a lot of things to despise about myself, Father, as I said. But one thing that I learned from him was hard work. You know, people make fun of me for, like, working 19 jobs like you just did. Mm -hmm. Um, But really, that's just what I grew up around. Everyone around me were extremely hard workers. Um, They were children or sometimes direct descendants from the migration. You know, poor Southerners that made their way up north looking for a better way of life, less racism. And they brought that work ethic with them. Um, I had aunts who had multiple jobs, uncles who had multiple jobs, and in my own house, even though there was a full-time job, anytime there was an opportunity to work overtime, you took that because it was a chance to get a leg up. And so I inherited that through osmosis. Not necessarily was taught to me, but just observed. Um, The other thing was the importance of family. Um, Again, uh, I despise the man, but the family unit was very important when it came to his family. And the same was true on my mom's side. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everyone knows, you know, how much I love and care about my family. Mm -hmm. And even, like, my new dog, he just got adopted, like, three weeks ago. He's been to the spa twice. You are spoiling that creature. You know that. Casper needs no love. (laughs) (laughs) He was in a rescue for, like, a year. And so when I got him home... When I met him, not to make this about my dog, but when I you pivoted very quickly now. <laughs> when I met when I met Cass, so I first saw him at four o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. when we both decided that you know now it's time to adopt the dog. I'm sorry, you made you made the decision to get a dog at four o'clock in the morning, and you went morning. right to four, the shelter. So, so that day, I, I I was scrolling through, and I said, I think I found the dog. Mm-hmm. And Steve's like, Steve's my husband. And Steve's mm-hmm. like, Oh yeah, he's really cute. So I said, I'm gonna go meet him. So I went. You and never I met just him. go meet him. You can't go to the shelter and just meet him. Like, you're going to take the dog if you go. Well, you should have told me that earlier. You did not call me at four in the morning. <laughs> That's true. It was seven for you then. I should have. You were up by then. So I go. I meet Casper. And I walk him around. And then I go back home. And Steve comes home from work. He says, how was it? I said, it was cool. I think Casper's like a really good dog. You should meet him. You know, blah, blah, blah. He was like, yeah. I said, the shelter's only open between this hour and this hour. So it was like Monday or Tuesday. I said, so we wait till the weekend before you get to see him. Right. And so as the day is going by, I was like, I can't leave him in there until the weekend. He's already been there in a year. So I was like, well, I'll just go and pick him up for a few days. You know, and then Steve will meet him. And then we can make a decision. So he's in the house sitting on the couch with me. Steve comes home. He's like, oh. I said, this is Casper. And he's like, oh. He'll like, be staying with us he'll now. He'll stay with us for a few days. And that was like three years ago. I'm going to let you talk more about your dog. We're going to get back. We're going to get back to actually your story. Before I, I think well, that, is so- from, that, that is my story. Like, I'm really like that sort of, that's just like my heart. You know, yeah. it's like I have like, I've lost track of the number of mentees that I have. Not that I'm equating dogs with children or <laughs> journalism students, but it's like if I see something in you that I think I can work with or that I can help, it's like I'm just in. Yeah. You know, so it's just it's just an extension of that. You you found your voice. I mean, you went into journalism, you, you developed a voice that was all your own. And I think a lot of people have come into, into contact with your work in any number of ways. And hundreds of thousands of them have seen your TED Talk, too, when you talk about the myth of the, the gay agenda, um, which everyone should go check out if you haven't already. This is back in 2012, right? Yes. And you, you're you sort of half joking, but also very, making some very serious points about the way we talk about gay culture, if that exists, gay lifestyle, as if it's one monolithic thing. 
But how, where did you get that language from? Like, were you exposed to um, to any gay individuals growing up? Was that a conversation that you ever had with your family? How did that sort of come to be you in know, your identity? It's it's really interesting because, you know, even now I've been out for, you know, probably longer than I was I was in the closet at this point. But I can I still go through moments in which I go back and reprocess life when I was in a closet, especially really? younger, you know, definitely younger, like under fifteen, um, because it allows me. Well, one, I have a son, and so I always wanted to be careful to make sure that the language that I use was inclusive, mm-hmm. and that if you ever felt the need to tell me anything, not just sexual orientation or gender identity, but just anything that the language that was used in the house, the language used around him and directly towards him was inclusive. So he felt as if he was always welcome to talk to me because that wasn't always the case for me. And that was part of the reason why I felt I needed to be closeted. It wasn't necessarily that anyone was calling me anything, but the way that the adults around me were talking about the subject of homosexuality informed me about how it was viewed and thus dictated whether or not it was something I wanted to share with my parents. How did they talk about it? Um, in a hush, hush tone. So it wasn't necessarily that he used slurs, but because it was talked about in a hush-hush secretive tone, well, only bad things are kept secret, right? So I just assumed it was bad. Right. You know, my mom's favorite phrase was, you know, he's got a little sugar in the tank. And I was just like, what the hell does that even mean? Like sugar in the tank. But then I was just observed the man who had sugar in the tank, and I was like, oh, that's what that means. Hmm. And sugar in the tank, if anyone who's ever had a car, it's not necessarily a good thing. So that's how I interpret it. So I didn't hear the slurs, yeah. but I heard some of the perspectives. Um, now, my mom, many years later, would tell you that she didn't mean anything negative about it. And it's been my experience that a lot of people don't mean anything negative about it. Even if they use a slur, they don't feel as if they're meaning anything negative about it. It's like people who are fans of the Washington football team. When you say, hey, you know that one word? That's really a slur that's offensive to Native Americans. Oh, but that's how I grew up. But there's nothing wrong with it. Right. You know, very, very yeah. comfortable through their worldview, not willing having the empathy to hear how someone else is interpreting or embracing what's being said around them. So I love my mom to death, and we've had this conversation, and the whole night she's totally fine with it now and loves yeah. Steve. And she actually loves some of the other boyfriends better, I think. But <laughs> she liked them. She could have married them and dealt with those consequences. But but growing up, you felt like this is not something I should be talking oh, about. Oh, absolutely not. But as I said, as I looked back, I go, oh, well, I didn't really like the Dukes of Hazard because of the plot or the car, and it definitely wasn't Daisy. <laughs> I said, but damn it, that Luke Duke, I was always so a fan. it was fan. Luke, I was going to ask. But yeah, it was Luke. It was Luke. Okay. And if you go back and you look at all the white guys I've ever dated and then eventually married, I mean, they're basically just Luke Duke. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It's like, if you look at all my Hollywood crushes, it's basically just Luke Duke. There's a thread. And <laughs> I would tell you done. this in full disclosure, and God, if Tom Wopat hears this podcast, I'm going to be in trouble. So, this is so bad, but... My son and I came to New York when he was in high school for a spring break. Yeah. And Chicago was on Broadway. And Tom Wopat, who played Luke Duke in The Dukes of Hazard, yes. was in the cast. So I convinced my poor, non-knowing son that this would be good for you. You should see this musical because it can inform you about the ways of the world and blah, 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 blah. Because I'm thinking, I get to see Luke Duke. <laughs> Do you remember what the play was even about? Yeah, yeah, you know, mm. she killed somebody and Mr. Cellophane and all that good stuff. But Luke Duke came on stage 
and he didn't look the same. That happened. <laughs> and I was like, oh, hmm. hmm. Wish I hadn't spent this money <laughs> to okay. try to relive my youth <laughs> through Tom Ropak. But so, yeah, there's things like that going, oh, I had, this was a crush. Michael for Good Times. That was a crush. Like going, oh, these were crushes. I just didn't have the vocabulary to actually know what it was. To recognize what they were, what exactly. they meant to you. Exactly. So what was that like for you when you came out? Oh, man, it was a long process. Matthew Broderick really helped me with that. As I said in the TED Talk, yeah. the movie that he was in, Song Trilogy, I had such a huge crush on Matthew Broderick. I mean, who didn't like Ferris, right? No, you didn't like Ferris? I mean, I liked the movie. I wouldn't say that I had a crush on Matthew Broderick. Oh, no geez. offense to Matthew Broderick. He seems like a lonely I mean, individual. That seems offensive to me. Just to say, okay. I'm sorry, look at him. Well, I was into Ferris Bueller. Okay. <laughs> and so he's in this movie, and I'm like, going, oh, what is Ferris doing now? You know, it's like, oh, oh, oh. Right. And that really began the process for me of saying, this might be who you are. How old were you? Um, maybe 16 at this point, 17 maybe. I wasn't a senior in high school. Okay. Because I remember spending my senior year with that yeah. f- sensation, that feeling, that awareness hanging over me. And it made high school, as you can imagine, um, tricky, especially... Because uh, my side job at the time was selling drugs as part of being in a gang. You talk about it kind of looming over. Was it like a fear? Was it like, did you recognize in, in, in yourself something that you just wanted to deny? Or were you still kind of figuring oh, it out? I was definitely you- fighting it, you know, every step of the way. And I had the hugest crush on this guy in high school. Huge crush. He was so cute. His name was Terrence. Oh, you said no names. Damn it. His name was Charles. <laughs> and um, Charles, I don't know if Charles was gay or not. <laughs> I've fallen into the Charles. You go with Charles, yeah, go with Charles. You go with Charles. I don't know if Charles was gay or not. Um, but he certainly um, exhibited behavior that one would equate with stereotypical sort of gay male behavior. And he was so cute and funny and talented and charming. I had a huge crush on him. And I was mean to Charles as often as I could be. Punched him a couple of times um, because he was a reminder, of course, of what I did not like about myself. I wasn't willing to accept about myself. Very similar to uh, a politician, you know, pinning or authoring bills um, that are anti-LGBT because they can't manage their own stuff. Um, My manifested in that way. I was very, very mean to him. So when I say it was looming, it was like that. Like I couldn't, I couldn't engage in the world in a freeing sort of way. It was always very calculated, particularly once I was out of school, um, because then I was straddling two worlds. Yeah, I was straddling the one in which I was attached to my high school and my friends and the activities, which included sports and dance and all this other stuff, music that I was interested in and was experimenting with. Yeah, and oh by the way, I was still kind of dabbling a little bit. Um, and selling selling pot. It wasn't. I didn't sell crack. I didn't shoot and kill anybody. It's just pot. It's just. It was just pot. But back then, it was still considered. You know. Yeah. Bad, bad, bad. So I'm straddling these two worlds. I'm trying to manage my sexual orientation, and I'm also um, still feeling that my home is not my house is not a home sort of thing, right? Because yeah. even though the physical abuse has stopped, the mental abuse was still there with my stepfather. Um. When I Got into college, 
and got out of the house mm-hmm. and was able to leave the drugs behind, the drug dealing behind, leave my stepfather behind, leave some of the crumblings of my city behind, and kind of had a chance to kind of get a fresh perspective on the world, mm-hmm. um, I still knew that my sexual orientation was not something to be shared or embraced. Why did you think that? Um, again, you know, the language that you hear around you. The things you um, heard growing up. Growing the, up those, well, and the yeah, things, and the... If, even in a college environment, except at this point, um, there was no hesitation to use the slurs. Right. So, you know, <clears throat> I was fortunate because I'm kind of a big guy. Um, I was athletic. I was into sports. So I was never really suspected at the time. But, I mean, I was definitely cognizant of whenever someone used a slur. What was that like to carry that around? I mean, on a day-to-day basis. Oh, it was really easy. All you have to do is just imagine that you're drowning. And then, yeah, that's about it. I think drowning is a good (laughs) sort of way to imagine what it's like. And you can see the air, you know, and you could uh, paddle as fast as you can. You know, but you have this this albatross around you that's holding you down, and you just feel like you can't fully breathe. You can't be yourself, um, and that was certainly the case for me. Um, I'm so happy to see young people come out, and you know, as early as junior high, yeah. And people are like going, "Oh, you're so young." It's like, "Oh, please, you have an idea who you have a crush on. When you're in junior high." Yeah. It's like we are we're aware. They're just free to express it, and that's beautiful. Yeah. I'm so, so happy for them. Um, college, because of that, college became the place where I found religion because we didn't grow up a very religious family. Okay. I started with uh, the Nation of Islam because um, Spike Lee was popular, and I was very impressionable, girl. Don't judge. Don't judge. Is that really how you came to it? Was yeah, I learned it through like Spike Lee movies. That's amazing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah way to go, Spike. <laughs> okay. Found bean pies, which I'm still crazy about. I can cook a mean bean pie in case you're wondering. Okay. You I'll expect some soon. <laughs> um, and so you I joined was, the Nation of Islam. So I was down with the Nation of Islam okay. until then. until there was a lesson that they teach in terms of how um, black and white people started in this path in terms of racism. Yeah. And... I'm not making this up. It's going to sound a little bit crazy. Okay. Just bear with me. Go for it. There's a scientist with a laboratory in Africa. Oh, yes. I've, I'm familiar that with made, this narrative. So you know this made the white people. The plate, yeah. Yeah. And then we sh- didn't like it. And so we shipped it away. And then they came back. Yeah. When I heard that, I just kind of looked around the room like, are we all good? <laughs> <laughs> you guys behind this too? <laughs> We're all good with this theory. The laboratory in Africa and the... The, the, we made the white. Are we good with this? We all good. And when I realized that everybody was just like, "Yep, mm-hmm, yep, that's what's happened," I was like, "Okay." And now I should move on to the next religion. I was done. I was like, "I'm so willing to try to find anything that's going to help me not be gay, but I can't go with the some African scientists make Luke Duke. Like I can't. I can't. I can't do Luke that. Duke. I can't do that. I just couldn't do that. So then, um, <laughs> this is hilarious, but. So I'm I'm doing theater. I actually ended up in college on a theater uh, scholarship, and I'm doing this play, community theater, in the summer. And uh, true story, I saw this guy, and he was just beautiful, just hot, just. 
I mean, girl. Like Luke Duke or? Like, Luke wish he looked that good. <laughs> and so, of course, you know, you know, I'm not gay, but I just want to strike up a friendship with this person. Oh, okay. So I just want to be around him, yeah. you know. And he happened to be an evangelical Christian. And so he's talking about his faith <clears throat> as I'm checking him out. And I realize I need to make a choice. Either I give my life to Christ and not go to hell, or I don't give my life to Christ, but I try to have sex with this guy. <laughs> One or the other. One or the other. And once I realized that sex wasn't going to happen, I was like, well, I might as well go to Jesus. <laughs> Is that where you met the woman who'd become your wife? No, we actually yeah. met in high school. You met in high school? Yeah, and she was religious. She was very she was... religious as well. Okay, because I she remember grew... you'd mentioned that before. Yes. Okay. And he, her father, you know, has aspirations of being a minister, and so mm -hmm. she grew up like that. Okay. And so once I got serious about my study and my faith, yeah. um, it wasn't as if my attraction to him dissipated altogether. Yeah. But then it was shifted towards the I need to pray this away. Okay. And I had a vehicle in which to get better because this was a sickness that God could cure. So that became my mentality. And I was dedicated to it. I moved in with my pastor. I read the Bible every day for hours. I fasted, you know, days, sometimes a week. Um and, and worship and in honor of God, obviously hoping that he will make me straight, but then also because it was part of the practice in which the community of Christians I was part of. I eventually um, was elevated to a youth minister within the church, um, and with that, uh, eventually got engaged and married my wife, who obviously was very happy that now I found Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, when and you it, never shared any of the inner turmoil with anyone, did you? Or not was that right just something away. you struggled with privately? I studied, st struggled with it privately. People just assumed I was just a really dedicated Christian, and, mm -hmm. it, and that part was true, but they didn't know exactly why I was so dedicated. And when it got to the point in which the burden was too heavy, the drowning was too much for me to overcome, I began to share with my pastor my struggles, who then pointed me towards Exodus programs, which were programs that are designed to help you pray the gay away. Yeah. Um, through a series of prayers and rituals and meetings and things like that. Um, shared it with my pastor, shared it with my, my wife. We prayed, continued to pray, fasted, worked really, really hard uh, within the confines of our understanding of evangelical Christianity to rid myself of this demon. So I go to a different church, and you know, lo and behold, that demon is still with me. So I was like, all right, well, we're going right back into the Exodus program, buddy. You know, you're not going to be with me because I'm straight. God made me straight. And I'm going to pray this gay away. So I told my um, associate pastor what I was dealing with. I was working in youth ministry then. Um, and, you know, it just got to the point in which my wife is pregnant. We are getting ready to start graduate school. Mm -hmm. And I've come to realize that I don't think this is a pray away thing um i think this actually might be who i am and that moment was i mean sure it's not just one moment it wasn't right? one moment what was but that it, time of your life like? it was difficult because it was a really easy sort of um uh question to ask myself either the god that i love and worship 
hates me so much that he would put this burden on me so I spend the rest of my life in misery or what I've been told about my God and hence myself isn't true. And I don't think you need to be a Christian to realize that if you truly believe in an all-loving, all-powerful God, um, he would not want you, he or she or the creator, however you want to phrase it, would not want to see um, his child uh, in that kind of pain for the rest of their lives. What lesson is there to learn from that? And so I had to, you know, reconcile my faith with my sexuality. So I, I did what I always do. I started reading. I started educating myself. I started digging through the scriptures and the history of the scriptures. And girl, when I found out about King James and now he had like this friend, he was always around and he was forced to marry a 15 year old girl for the throne. Shoot, your boy Ozzy was free. Free. <laughs> Do you hear me? Free. Because I was like, wait, wait a minute. I'm going to let this keep this hearing the A thing slide, you know, about, you know, him cutting off women's heads because they couldn't bear sons. And then he's the one that had the Bible translated because Catholicism wouldn't allow him to get divorced. Right. So he came up with Christianity to help him out. I'm going to let that one slide. But this thing. <laughs> but this thing here. King James? For real? Oh, no. No, no. And you had me fasting, losing weight and stuff? <laughs> Let a good-looking man go. I could have maybe got that one. What? <laughs> no, no. You use the word free. What? What is that like? What was it like when you came? Because there, there are consequences, too, yes. at that stage of yes. your life. Yes. I am not even going to try and make this sound as if I came out and then everything was, like, rosy. Right. Um, it was painful. It was awful. Um, first of all, um, I, I, can't, I don't know what it's like for other men or women who— um, are gay or lesbian, get married, and then realize they're not who they thought they were and get divorced. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was awful because I loved her. She was someone I grew up with, and I very much wanted to be that man for her, very much so. And so to break her heart took me years. It was harder for me to get over breaking her heart than it was to accept being gay. That's how difficult it was. So it was pure hell. Yeah. Um, my son uh, was a motivating factor for me coming out because I knew I wanted him to be a forthright, upstanding, positive contributor to society. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to parent that when you're constantly living in this lie and you're drowning in front of him every second. How old was he around this time? Uh, he wasn't quite two yet. Yeah. So. <clears throat> but um, you're starting to think about how. But I'm you're starting to think about how I'm going to raise him. Exactly. And, yeah. Exactly. And not wanting to be a hypocrite. And obviously, when you grow up as an abused kid, you can go one of two ways. You either become an abuser, or you go away on the other side, and you just are this big, loving, highly attentive parent. Yeah. I'm the latter. You know, so I wanted to be as open, as honest with him as possible. We just had like a 35 minute conversation about the Kenny Lamar album. Like we, we just like that. Like you guys talk now. all the time. We talk like we all do. the time. We have a great relationship. Yeah, that's pretty fortunate. Thank you. Um, but it, it, the, the freedom to just be yourself, to say that's a good looking guy and not be fearful. It's, it's wonderful. And it's something that heterosexual people take for granted. But it's something that any person 
who's part of a group that's in power mm-hmm. takes for granted that level of freedom, whether you're a Christian in America, whether you're a white male in America, whether you're heterosexual in America, um, you know, whether you're able-bodied yeah. in America. There's just certain things that we take for granted, and um, it's not through any fault of our own, it's human nature, but there is another narrative out there that doesn't view the world the same way. I call it the happy days thing. What do you mean? When happy days was popular, it wasn't happy days for everybody, but it was happy days for them. And so we looked and go, they're having a great time. Meanwhile, I'm going back to this here bus. Speaking of representation, you know, in the last, just the last year, really, um, there have been a lot of, uh, of popular TV shows, movies, et cetera, that get people talking more about what it means to be, in particular, African-American and gay in America and how it's unique or different from other experiences. And look at like shows like Issa Rae's Insecure and they've touched on it or Moonlight and we've talked about it during our Oscar coverage um, and characters on Empire. I'm still, still, (laughs) that moment. Um, But I, I wanted to get your take on that because I, you know, I think people talk around it. Some people kind of starting to have this conversation. Is is there something unique in African-American communities about being a man and being gay? Well, I, I definitely feel as if the narrative about that dynamic is pretty unique. Yeah. Um, and I say narrative because I think there are layers to that topic that don't get explored as much. Mm. And that's the, the connectivity to homophobia in general. Um some of the most homophobic things that are done to people are done under the guise of faith. Telling you that just your very being is an affront to the presence of God right. is a really awful thing to say. That there's some religious justification exactly. for the, the homophobia. For the homophobia, the, for the yeah. discrimination. I hate the word for, homophobia, but yeah, for yes, the discrimination. For, for all of yes. it. I mean, that's yeah. just horrific. And so... You begin to ask yourself, is it really about race or is it about the role of religion within that race? Mm. When you look at how um, views of um, same-sex marriages differ based upon generation, differ based upon the region of of the country, differ based upon socioeconomic status, different based upon education level. When you begin to see those things play into how a person may feel about an LGBT couple or an LGBT person, you realize that, yes... Race is seen as, you know, a, a great divider, if you will. But really, there is there is a through line through mm-hmm. that. And, and these are the factors. You know, if you uh, go to the South and you go to a, a church that's predominantly white and evangelical and people are speaking in tongues and laying hands on people, that's not going to be a less homophobic environment than somewhere up north. Um, where they're speaking in tongues and they're evangelical and they're laying hands on people. Yeah, I mean, it's not, oh, well, that's white homophobia, so it's coming with a little bit of niceness. And right. It's like, no, they're quoting the same scriptures. <laughs> You're going to hell. <laughs> so <clears throat> if you are someone who um, tends to think that black people are more homophobic, I can get why you would, would say that because of the role of religion has played historically in the black community, has been more upfront and pronounced, 
you know, some of our greatest civil rights leaders used scripture, used the pulpit as a vehicle to help get the message of civil rights across. Right. Um, but it isn't simply because you grew up in a black neighborhood that hence you're going to be more homophobic than someone who grew up in Appalachia, USA. Yeah. You, um, you went into sports writing in your career. I had no choice. You loved sports. You I were good sports. at them. You're obsessed with them in your own words. What was that like for you? Was that you've talked about it before about being a challenge? Yes. And there have been, you know, recently there have been some conversations around, um, in particular, professional athletes who've. It's crazy to think that in the last five years, that is somehow groundbreaking to come out and be a professional athlete. But that's where we are right now. There's still it's a very different world. So what was that? What was that experience like for you? Well, number one, I know I lost a number of job opportunities because I was openly gay. I know this because they told me. So they told you? Yeah, yeah. So it's the '90s. You know, yeah. I'm a little bit older than I look. It's the cocoa butter. But I was a young buck in the 90s, you see, mm-hmm. trying to bring into the business. And at that point, it was pretty comfortable to say things like, I'm not sending a gay man into the locker room. Wow. I was told that by sports editors as I was trying to apply for jobs. So. What do uh, you even say? What do you say to that? What do you, what do, you do after I, someone tells you that? I just sort of said thank you because I didn't really have a recourse. Right? There, I mean. We're talking pre-marriage in Hawaii. You know, we're talking, we're still thinking every gay person has AIDS and going to die eventually. I mean, that's where we were. This is pre-will and grace. This is, the country was a very, very different place then. And so uh, all you you could do was just kind of hope that, you know, someone would eventually give you a chance. Um, I wouldn't like to say that I gave up, but I just decided to take a different path. You know, so I did the job that I could get hired to do as an openly gay person. And when the opportunity presented itself, I would do sports stories. I was a sports you know, writer in my college newspaper. That was an issue. But, of course, I was closeted then, so no one knew. But once I became a professional, you know, if I had opportunity to do stories, I did them. And I just sort of piecemealed it that way until I got to Atlanta. And in Atlanta, we were starting a new section of the newspaper I'm called uh, Access Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And the editors had tapped me to be the lead writer for this new section of the newspaper. And I was really excited about it. And I was like going, well, this is great. And we're supposed to be covering um, pop culture and entertainment. And I said, we should also do sports because sports is entertainment. And they said, what do you mean? I was like going, well, who do you think shows up for these sporting events? Right. Families. Why? To be entertained. They bought into it. That's how I began. Like that worked. <laughs> yeah, that's how I crowbarred my way into finding myself covering teams and writing features and um, doing daily stories on their their lives because uh, it was all part of entertainment. As you can imagine, the sports department wasn't particularly thrilled, and the sports editors weren't particularly thrilled that I had access now to athletes that they thought they could only get. Oh yeah. Um, but I didn't care um, because. This was my section, and I had a little bit of power finally. So a gay man was finding the locker room, opening gay man's covering sports in the locker room in a major market, and it was it was pretty freaking cool. I end up meeting an editor, uh, Luke Sight. I shouldn't say should I say his name? Charles. I end up meeting Charles <laughs> uh, at a at a at a sports conference, 
And I told him that uh, ESPN the magazine was like, you know, like so awesome and I loved it. It was fantastic and it inspired me to like, you know, have things shot a certain way, to write in a certain tone because of what they were doing in New York. And he says, oh, you should write for us, you know, like a freelancer. And I was like, really? You think I'm talented enough to do that? And he was like, well, yeah. And so uh, I started pitching stories. And after a while, uh, I get a call from the NBA editor and says, man, we really love these stories you're pitching and you're doing for us. We got a spot as an NBA editor. Would you be interested in, you know, coming in? And I said, yeah, sure. You know, and I'm like, who's going to say no to ESPN, right? So I get in, I come up for the interview, and I tell them, I go, listen, I'm gay. You just need to know that. So if this is going to factor into the hiring process at all, I just need you to know up front before, you know, we go too much further. I have no intentions of going back in the closet. This is just, it is what it is. I'm happy in Atlanta. I got a great job, great family. It's all good. And you know, it was like, no, no, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. You know, but I was like, all right, but I'm still looking at the side eye, right? Like you say it's fine, because now we're in the 2000s. Things are a little bit different now. Yeah, you can't just say stuff to me, but you can still not give me a job because of it. But you know, it was obviously it worked out. That was like 13, 14 years ago. It, you talking about how it was in the 90s? It, it strikes me it hasn't been that long mm. since this country has evolved at like breakneck speed when it comes to what we consider to be inclusivity, mm-hmm. at least when it comes to LGBT rights, right? Or yeah. And and I, I wonder how, you know, we've moved so quickly on so many of these issues. Where do you think we are right now? Well, I think we're part of the, the part of the um, growth as a nation where we move from legislating tolerance to changing hearts and minds through interaction. The Emancipation Proclamation uh, freed the slaves, but they weren't free from racism. And we can certainly make arguments to say that, you know, the Jim, the new Jim Crow is still very much in, in effect and that the racism that hindered the African-American community in the past still hinders us today in a lot of socioeconomic ways and has bled over to, to our Latino brothers and sisters. You can certainly make that argument. But the point is, is that we no longer feel as if the language and the tone in which we describe people who are different from us was acceptable. And that's because, not because of legislation, mm-hmm. but because of a change of hearts and minds and interacting with people. Mm-hmm. Same thing when it comes to, to women's rights. Um, you know, it, discrimination was written into the Constitution, not just with race, but with gender. You're not smart enough to vote. What? A, I mean, the notion that, you know, we're now a divided country is like, no, 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 no. Started this way, was written this way yeah. as, as division. We're trying to patch up some of the things our forefathers kind of screwed up is what we're doing. But through hearts and minds being changed, women being in leadership roles, women uh, inventing things, women apparently sending men into space, if you've seen the movie Hidden Figures, um, those things inform people in a different way. And so you can't legislate that kind of change. It can only happen through time and through exposure. So we're at the point now where, um, 
you know, there are still some laws, obviously, that we need to address. There's still more than 30 states in which you can get married, but then lose your job if your employer finds out you married the right. same sex. Or you get kicked out of your apartment. So you go on your honeymoon and you come back, there's a note on your door saying eviction notice, you know, this is against my religion. That still is very much a real thing. But we also need to be setting our sights on how do we change hearts and minds? Um, my buddy Neil, who used to be president of GLAD, um, mayor of Tempe, Arizona, um, he was CEO of the San Francisco Aid Foundation. He's, I mean, just a powerhouse. He used to say that phrase over and over again. And it took me a while to really understand the magnitude of what he was saying. You know, changing hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you do that? By having the courage first by saying, this is who I am and I'm not going anywhere. And oh, by the way, uh, the things that I desire out of my life are not very different than yours. You ask about the, the, the gay agenda TED talk that I did. That's where that genesis came from. This notion that, you know, at the time that I did it, my son was in high school. His room was a mess. Mm-hmm. You know, he was always hungry. I was an ATM, a taxi, and a maid. You know, I think anyone who has a teenage child would say, oh, that sounds familiar. <laughs> Not, oh, that sounds gay. <laughs> That's a gay lifestyle thing, isn't it? You have a child who's messy and ungrateful and just wants food all the time? No, there's things that connect us. And so when you use language like the gay lifestyle, like we're doing something totally different. Now, when it comes to sex, we are doing something different than you. Um, but not by a great deal. Because the point you explain of, that to me. Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. It's, hmm. it's, you know, but not by a great deal. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, sex is a pleasurable exchange with someone. And all kinds of people of different orientation do so all kinds of things with their body parts. <laughs> Not gonna get all into that. Jose, I'm gonna bring you back on track. I feel like but, this is gonna go down I'm a different just, path. But, but I'm just saying, <laughs> this is gonna have a cigarette. Okay. But I'm just saying that there are differences, but those differences are so minute. You know, even if you say like, "Oh, but you're having sex," like, "Well, you have sex too." Like we all are doing the same things. It's just that the the differences you're obsessing about are so minute yeah. when we have this whole lexicon of humanity that really connects us. And if we can just focus in on that and not the boogeyman about what we do differently, that small, small portion, not just when it comes to LGBT issues, but, you know, the, everything. I want to ask you something because you talked about how it, you know, people change their minds when they know people or they see people that they can look up to and relate to being open about who they are and, you know, being proud of it and, and showing how we're all the same. Do you think that there is, (laughs) do you think that there is, do you think there's a responsibility for people who have a platform and a voice, celebrities or, or others to be open about their sexuality for that purpose? Like, do they carry a greater weight than other people? I get asked this question a lot. And as I've gotten older, my views have changed. So when I was younger and really sort of starting the fence between journalism and activism, mm-hmm. um, I felt absolutely they had an obligation to do that. And then, as I mentioned in the earlier part of the podcast, I started reflecting on my own life and realizing that I came out at the exact point in which I was ready to come out. Mm. That 
life would have been different for me if the world was more accepting of LGBT people. Not necessarily because if I would have came out at 15, um, I wasn't ready. If you're ready, then by all means, come out. If you're ready and you have a large platform and culture, by all means, come out and share. But only if you're ready. I don't feel comfortable telling people what they should do with their lives. I only feel comfortable telling them the impact of what they do could have on others. And then hopefully through that conversation and sharing my own experiences will give them the courage or inspire them to share because you, we are saving lives. My life was definitely saved, you know, by the work of Bayard Rustin, right? By the work of uh, Elan Harris, by the work of Martina Navratilova, you know, Dave Copay, you know, the people who put their lives at risk to live their lives openly, free, and proud um, for their own sanity, but also being acutely aware of the impact that it would have on future generations. And so as someone who's blessed to have, you know, a, a, a platform on ESPN, a, a previous platform on CNN and now with ABC, you know, I don't shove the fact that I'm gay uh, out there every time I'm on television. But because of my freedom, I don't feel like I have to curtail my language either. I don't have to hide pronouns when I'm talking about what I did for Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. I don't have to pretend as if we have like, you know, a guy in a swimsuit on television. I had to be like, oh, God, cover my eyes. No, now I'm like going, what up, bro? (laughs) (laughs) And just through my presence, one allows other people to see someone who's different from them doing something that they didn't think that we could do, mm-hmm. but also inspire other young people to let them know that just because you're different doesn't mean that this door is closed to you. Elsie Granderson, you wear so many hats. You're accomplished in so many different ways. And I know that we could have had, we can probably have more conversations, but you'll have, you'll have to come back. Will you come back sometime? Cause we have a lot of other things we could talk about. Can we like pick like a different location? We should like just keep talking like, like pepper all over the country. This is, is this a pitch? This is what's happening right now? I'm just saying, you can be uncomfortable in sand. What's the next location? Hawaii. <laughs> exactly. Coming up next time. Uncomfortable at Niagara Falls. With, I don't know why. Um, sincerely, sincerely, thank you for sharing you. just this one part of your story with us. I really appreciate it. Thank that. you. And thank you for the recolo so I get to keep the extras. You can keep those. All those right. are on the house just Boom. for you. I knew this would be worth it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. If you like what we're doing, take a minute, leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find these conversations, and we really just want to hear what you think. Plus, we've made it easy. Just click on the link in the description of this episode. If you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews or tweet at me, at Navazistan. That's N-A-W-A-Z-I-S-T-A-N, or use the hashtag UncomfortableTalk. Uncomfortable is a production of ABC News. New episodes post every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. I'm Amna Nawaz. Thanks for listening.